This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 23 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And uh, Max is not here tonight. We thought he was here, but uh, then the person who was here (laughs) ripped off their face and it turned out to be, well, it was actually my cat. And now he's in the corner sleeping. So, um, you know, what can you do? But uh, <laughs> we, we will, we will uh, forge on ahead uh, and discuss this week's topic, which is uh, part two in our series on Leonard Nimoy, where we are going to be looking at his work as a television star in the only other show which he acted in on a on a regular basis aside from Star Trek like not as a guest starring role but where they were like starring but and right. that that's that's Mission Impossible. So, uh um, let's give everybody a second to just now that you said Mission Impossible get it out of your head dun 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 and just let it play out and now we can go on. It's it's not going to get out of your head. It just got in my head, and it's yeah. not going to leave until probably I'm I'm done editing this thing. So probably. So yeah. <laughs> so Mission Impossible. You know, I mean, most people today, like if you were to ask, you know, your average high schooler, like, "Hey, Mission Impossible," they'd be like, "Yeah, Tom Cruise." But Mission Impossible was a television show. It was two television shows, as a matter of fact, and the first one aired um, in the 60s and the 70s, and um, in season four, when Star Trek had ended, Leonard Nimoy jumped on board Mission Impossible as one of the leads. Um, He played a character named Paris, who was a master of disguise, and he stayed on there for two years, seasons four and five. So, um, John, could you kind of give a uh, description of what Mission Impossible the show was like kind of plot wise or whatever I'm not sure if I will uh, speak to that self same high school crowd that identifies with uh, Tom Cruise but anybody who grew up with the A team it's basically the A team before the A team where basically a group of people uh, get handed a task that is supposedly incredibly difficult and hero their way through it uh, the the slight difference being they always had to be put up against a, a mission from uh, an exploding tape that would tell them that they had to do something insane like smuggle a scientist out or find the center of a drug ring or keep a murder from happening from a contract killer. And so the whole show is just them trying to stay one step ahead and get out of tight jams until they finally figure out how to win everything at the end. Yeah, I'm guessing anyone who knows what the A team is probably knows what Mission Impossible is. That's a fair <laughs> bet. That's a fair I I don't think I mean is there anything on TV right now that's really similar like analogous to Mission Impossible? Well, I mean, what I would say was even though it's not on TV anymore um is a- Alias. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, that's a good Yes, you're right. Alias would have been in the same vein. But now that show's like 10 years old, too, more than 10 years old. So, you know, we're old. What can you we do? We are. We're getting up there, man. <laughs> Mission Impossible, uh, It's it started in 1966, same year as Star Trek. It ended in 1973. It was very popular and uh, not tremendously similar to the movies, which it has spawned. Uh, but um, good Nonetheless, I don't know. What do you think about Mission Impossible? Uh, I think that it doesn't hold up over time. But I think that if you make the allowance for the idea that it was the 60s, I mean, you know, one one of the shows that I watched uh, for this was the first episode of season five, The Killer. And it 
in a sense, it's fun to watch because the entire premise of how they fooled this guy would have been undone by G-Maps. So, like, <laughs> it's a really interesting historical uh, look back at everything like phone books or phone booths or, you know, cabs that are kind of becoming pointless now in the in the app age. Um, you know, it's it's fun, but it, I don't I honestly don't think that there's anything that that subscribes it outside of nostalgia. I, I don't I don't think it really stands the test of time. Maybe the first few seasons do, but as it got on, not really. It's one of those weird things. Like when uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol came out, it was it was weird because like, I mean, it's always sort of been this way for me, actually. I can remember when the first Mission Impossible movie came out and I was in high school. I'm like, yeah, this thing's awesome. There's a TV show. Oh, my God. And then I watched like one episode of the show and I'm like, what's what's this? You know? <laughs> yeah. And when, when Ghost Protocol came out and I kind of was more aware of the history and everything like that. And, you know, I was like, you know what? This is on Netflix now. I'm going to check it out, you know? How hard would it be for me to watch all 171 episodes and the 80s series as well before um, Ghost Protocol comes out? And I started on season one, and I'm like, this is really interesting. You know, and then I got to episode two, and I'm like, this is interesting in the same exact way, Yeah. you know? Because the thing about the show is it really... It's, it does what it does really well, but what it does is like the same thing again and again and again. Yeah. And I mean, for, for people who haven't seen the show, but maybe have seen the movies, um, the best way to describe it would be, you know, the episodes open up with, you know, Mr. Phelps getting his mission, right? And then they immediately jump into it. And it's really just sort of a procedural where they figure out how to do this thing, whether it's, you know, um, protecting a, an important person or stealing the plans to a whatever. It's really just sort of a step-by-step procedural of how they're going to do it. It's very similar to um, any individual sort of like, um, not necessarily the action sequences in the movie, but sort of the uh, the set pieces where they have to do a thing. Like, for example, in Ghost Protocol, when they're they're at the hotel and they need to transform the room and yeah. shut down the server, and, you know, there's complications, and it involves people climbing up, you know, skyscrapers or whatever. And it's like, while that is um, obviously escalated in the movies, that's basically just like a feature film, big-budget version of an episode of the show. But, like, one of those little... 10 minute sequences in the movie would yeah. be like the entire episode of the show. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. <laughs> because they, pacing, the, the concept of pacing was quite different back in the 60s and early 70s. And, it's true. you know, to speak to your point about repetition, like I, I think we talked about this uh, with regards to uh, something else we looked at at one point. But back then, things were really, you know, there was no binge watching. If you missed an episode, see you later. You missed it, period. So you might go two weeks without seeing an episode of Mission Impossible. And so, you know, it's whatever night it is of the week. You've had a rough day at work. Your boss is climbing up your back. You just want to sit down with your beer and your cigarette, and you want to watch something <laughs> that's not going to challenge you too much. And there you go. There's Mission Impossible. The good guys do neat things. And, okay, it's the same thing, but whatever. That's fun. Yeah, I mean, just like those sequences in the movies are fun. Yeah. But, you know, the difference is that in the movies, and I mean, some people will complain about the writing in those movies. I, I would not. I think the writing in those movies tends to be really good. But um, in the movies, those sequences are connected by uh, a story, you know. There's something which is kind of driving the overall plot, Um in terms of, you know, some sort of meaning or whatever. You know, there's stuff going on with the characters. Whereas here, there's really nothing going on with the characters, aside from maybe like, oh no, they've kidnapped Phelps. Well, we need to get him back because he's Phelps. You know, yeah. that sort of thing. But 
they throw you in. And I mean, part of it, I, I admire the sort of um, uh, no nonsense, you know, just like get in there. This is an action series and we're going to, you know, make it full on action suspense for the entire, you know, 50 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's literally like, you know, here's your mission. You got to do this thing. Why? Doesn't matter because it's important. Select your team. Okay, there's the team. Everyone's together. Okay, here's how we're going to do it. You do it. You get out. Episode ends. Credits. You know? Yeah, and, and the funny thing is that every, every episode, it, you know, it's your mission should you choose to accept it. They never once deal with a scenario where he doesn't. It, like it would be and the tape destroys itself i've always wondered was there some sort of signal he could give where it'd be like nah i don't want to do this one i'm on vacation this week it's always he always accepts it why do they even bother asking it is kind of funny i mean they they do assume that you know like um i think they even did that in one of the episodes that i watched i, I know that they do it in, in mission impossible 3 with billy crudup where he's like your mission should you choose to accept it and then he's like thanks ethan and good luck you know, like, yeah, you know, one of those things, you know, kind of like when you're sending off an email at work and it's like, could you do this? Thanks. Yeah. Knowing that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's exactly <laughs> if right. If the person doesn't do it, you know, I think it's kind of one of those things, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's like a 1960s email or something. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, I can understand why on a regular basis, they didn't ever do that. And I mean, it's kind of a cool little term, you know, I guess, to, to throw in there. Yeah. And and by throwing it in there, you're sort of, you know, in, in a way acknowledging that this is so dangerous that they're not even going to make you do it. You know, you have to accept the, the risk or whatever. But why wasn't there an episode out of 171? <laughs> yeah. And maybe there was. I'm sure we're going to get someone who's arguing that. There was. It was episode 152. <laughs> you know, but I mean, why wasn't there an episode where they were just like, you know what? We're not going to do it. And then something terrible happens and they, you know, just when they thought they were out, they, they, they get pulled back in, you know? <laughs> the entire episode is them doing cleanup because they didn't do something. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Right. <laughs> then they send in another team. Right. And then you get into the movie territory where it's like, oh, there's a, a mole inside of uh, IMF, because that's what I think like every movie has been so far. I don't yeah. think there's been a single movie where there hasn't been someone either accused of being bad or actually being bad inside of IMF. But but they were bad in IMAX a couple of times in uh, the fourth one. So. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. So what about uh, Leonard Nimoy's performance in this thing? Now, he played a character named Paris, who was, um, from what I understand, a master of disguise, although there were a lot of guys who seemed to be that um, in the show. And, um, well, I don't know. I mean, for one thing, it, it seems that was he did he take over for Martin Landau? Is that kind of how things went down? Landau left and then they were like, OK, we're bringing in Nimoy. I mean, I guess that's what it was. Right. Yeah. They needed a, they needed, you know, like you said, it, it's sort of plug and play. You know, when somebody uh -huh. left the show, they were able to grab someone and and put him in that spot. And, yeah, I, you know, I don't know for sure if that's the case, but. It would follow because Nimoy has sort of that same um, distinctive voice and look that, you know, and I don't I don't mean that to be dismissive of, you know, anybody's talent in either way. But, you know, TV shows, they want familiarity. And so if they're going to replace a character, they tend to go for or at least they used to tend to go for somebody that was very similar to, you know, who was established previously yeah i mean they were actually going to do that with uh nimoy in season two apparently you know they 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 had like a contract dispute and they didn't know if he was coming back and they had another they had like a, an alternate version of a muck time written for like a, some random other vulcan who's gonna take his place who's gonna be played by the dude who was the other vulcan um male co potential companion for Oh really? Yeah. No kidding. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. I mean, I guess that that is kind of the thing that that they did. And also, I mean, I guess it, it kind of makes sense in that 
Martin Landau was, you know, even back then, he was a, a name, you yeah. know? I mean, that was a certain amount of star power in Leonard Nimoy because the Star Trek was also a name. So you got to replace him with someone, got to replace Landau with someone who can really fill that role in a um, sort of like a ce- celebrity sense, you know? Yeah. And Nimoy, Nimoy fit the bill. It makes sense. Yeah, it does. But um, but yeah, I mean, what what did you think about Nimoy's performance or Nimoy's character and his performance on on the show? Uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily light the world on fire, but he was fun to watch. Uh, as a Star Trek fan, it's it's incredibly difficult to divorce him from the whole Spock thing. It really is. So the first time you see him and he, you know, he says like, hey, baby, or something like when he's in character, it's like, ah, Spock, what are you doing? Why why do you have sideburns like that? Um, But he he pulls it off. I mean, it's like he's he's a very natural talent for acting. And so nothing came across as forced. He was a believable character. And, uh, you know, so once you get past the whole Spock thing, you know, it's a good performance. Yeah, I, I agree. It is a good performance. And, you know, it, I agree with you about the whole Spock thing. You know, it is weird to see that. Um, because especially, like, even more so than with someone like Shatner. Because you see someone like Shatner in something else, um, let's say on TJ Hooker or whatever. And um, it's weird, but it's not so jarring. Because at least he's still playing sort of like an authority figure and everything like that. Yeah. Or extending that even to Boston Legal, you know, it's a comedic role, but, you know, whatever. But with Leonard Nimoy, I mean, Spock is so alien, you know, not just in the, you know, alien sense, but but also in, in just his portrayal of of a person. Yeah. That when you see him in something like Mission Impossible where he's actually acting like a human being, you're <laughs> like, what? That's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that that's, that's kind of like a big, I mean, a, a big part of it um, as far as, you know, having trouble accepting. But there's also this kind of like weird meta thing going on where, like, I get the impression that he was so afraid of being typecast as Spock that sure. he really wanted to do something which was, um, for one thing, very different, but also allowed him to show his full range of talents. So he's like, okay, I'm going to play this guy who, on a weekly basis, is playing someone else. And it's like, there you have then, in one role, basically, he's got um, uh, a chance on a weekly basis to do something different every single week that's a great point i hadn't even thought of it from that angle but you're right because paris's whole shtick is to be something different every week so yeah it does wind up being a showcase yeah spot on and 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 it is kind of uh strange because i watched the first episode that he was in which was the season four premiere and in that one he had to um uh, i forget exactly what the plot was I, i kept on thinking while watching it that um it seemed to be sort of a, like a. It felt like they were trying to basically make him Che, you know. He there was yeah. there was like a, a Central American um, government which was about to be overthrown, and there were other parties, and basically there were like three guys who were trying to figure out how to divvy up control of the country or whatever, and the makeup and everything that they used, and the and the wardrobe that they gave him and everything. It was like, man, okay, I think almost for sure they were trying to, you know, echo Che when they were doing this. Sure. But the weird thing about that, aside from the fact that he was wearing, like, brown face, but, you know. (laughs) It was a different era. (laughs) It was a different era, yeah. Um, Aside from that, the weird thing about it was, like, this is the first time we've ever seen this character, right? So, you know... Uh, Mr. Phelps gets his his assignment, and then he goes into the room, and he picks his people, and there's a, a bunch of uh, characters who I, I think we have met before because they were holdovers from earlier in the show, and then there's Leonard Nimoy, Paris, and he's like, okay, Paris, uh, so you're going to have to go undercover as this guy. 
And he's like, okay, I'll do that. And then, like, that's the the one time where you actually see him being Paris before he becomes someone else. And it's like, and then for the, the entire rest of the episode, he is undercover. And it's like, he doesn't have a chance to establish, like, a baseline for who his actual character is. It's like, by the end of the first episode, you are much more familiar with the character that Paris is playing than you are uh, with the character that Nimoy is playing. Yeah. It's a very strange thing. I don't know a way around it aside from doing it like a normal TV show would do and actually introducing a character, but it was the 60s. They didn't do that. I mean, we know that from Star Trek. You just throw people in there and pretend like you've been doing this for the past five years already. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I I think... That part of that is the the they didn't feel the need for preamble because of the built in. I mean, because it was season four, you know, yeah. they figured people are going to find out who Paris is, you know, as it goes forward. So why bother? Like, you just need to know that he isn't, you know, Che. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you need like a scene where it's like he's doing something. Oh, okay. You just need to know it's somebody behind the makeup. Yeah. Now, um. As someone who's probably seen more episodes uh, with Nimoy than than I have, did you get the impression that there was a character underneath that, or did you feel like he really is just playing someone different each week? Uh, You know, I did get a sense of a character underneath that, because there was a very interesting, uh, you know, especially in in the, the opening of season five, you can definitely pick up on the undercurrents of affection between Paris and I, I forget Leslie Ann Warren's character name, but yeah. whenever he interacts with her, like he he plays relationships that maybe weren't even written into the script. Like of all, like if you take Peter Lupus and who I'm sure is a, a fine person, he was just delivering lines, as was God bless him Peter Graves. But with Nimoy, uh, and you know to to give full credit, um, Warren and Greg Morris, you very much got a sense of people that were playing characters as opposed to reading lines from a script. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I do think you get that sense of something underneath that you never fully get to know because of the nature of the show. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. Like, um, that's something which... I, you never really hear people talk about this, but but I don't know. I, I I always think about this when I'm watching the the new movies. You know, with Tom Cruise is like part of it is because of the style of those movies and how it's ever changing, which I love. But I really get the impression that if you were to uh, look at each of those movies and uh, say that they were their own things, and each time um, Tom Cruise is playing a different character. It, it would totally work that way too. Like if yeah. you look at Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible versus Ethan Hunt, especially in Mission Impossible Two, it's like where is even the similarity between these two people? You know, and there he's that's not even when he's undercover. It's just in general. Yeah. It seems like you know the actual like characters themselves are very unimportant to this franchise on the whole. I don't know. It's strange. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I mean, uh, like to to sort of uh, expand upon what you said earlier. Like, I, I guess you could look at the movies as full seasons of the show. It's you yeah. know, the movies are just binge watching a season of Mission Impossible. So maybe we're looking at seven movies total, and that's when they'll hang it up. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that'd be cool. Um, what what do you think about the movies? You know, since we're on the subject, uh, they're good. Uh, except for the second one, I didn't. I don't think anybody really liked the second one. Oh man, uh, I love the second one. Well, there you go. I found <laughs> you. I my long search is over, Mike. I have found the one person. Um, I I you know the second one I didn't care for. Uh, the third one I liked a lot more than a great deal of my friends did. I love the first one. I remember seeing the first one and thinking it was just you know it was the bee's knees to borrow my my grampy's term. Um, and Mission Impossible 4 I thought 
I'm not going to lie. I went to go see for the Dark Knight Rises preview, mm-hmm. as I think the entire audience did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was it was entertaining. Like, there, there's nothing compelling me to go back, but I enjoyed watching it in IMAX. And, you know, when he was on top of the, was it the Burge Dubai? That sequence was a lot of fun on IMAX, yeah. especially for those of us who have, you know, issues with heights. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing... You know, much like the show, it's not anything that I'm going to be like, oh, you've got to see Mission Impossible 4. Like, I think somebody would be fine. It's almost like the reverse Star Trek curse. I'm like, yeah, you could watch one and three and be, you'll be okay. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think my opinion is, is a bit stronger than yours uh, as far as all of them are concerned. I mean, I was looking forward to the first one so much when, when I was in high school and I, I saw, you know, opening night or the night before or whatever. And I was just like, yeah, that was cool. I don't understand what's going on, but that, yeah, the <laughs> plane and the, the helicopter and, you know, flinging on the train and everything. But um, I really loved the second one. I really loved how they sort of were like, we're going to do something completely different now. You know, we've got a new director in there who has a very distinct style. Just like when you watch the first one, it's like, this is a Brian De Palma movie. It's very much a Brian De Palma movie, yeah, and and um, which is probably truer to the the show than any of them, you know, in in a sense, um, at least stylistically. But the second yeah. one, it's like, well, we've got John Woo in there. If you hire John Woo to make a movie, you want a John Woo movie. So there's lots of gunfights with you know two two guns per person. There's doves, there's, it's the whole package, you know, slow motion. You are not going to sway me on Mission Impossible (laughs) 2, man. There are so many times I listen to you and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I'll give it, you're not going to win this battle. Not at all. Here's the thing about Mission Impossible 2. Um, (laughs) I mean, I, I love all that, right? I mean, part of it is nostalgia because it was like the first time that like I got like to show like a, a big blockbuster summer you know memorial day kind of movie and so i was like so looking forward to that and everything but um (laughs) i i I have a friend and he uh would always insist like when he saw the trailer and everything he's like this is gonna be the best movie ever made for sure (laughs) and this is the type of guy who like if he were to say that you'd be like you're just being you know sarcastic you know yeah. And then he saw the movie, and he's like, oh, yeah, I saw it. And I'm like, yeah, what did you think? He's like, it was the best movie ever made. And I'm like, yeah, really? So then what did you think about it? And he's like, it was the best movie ever made. you know. And to this day, if you ask him what his opinion of, his opinion of Mission Impossible 2 is, he will say it is the best movie ever made. I have never heard him say anything other than that, about Mission Impossible 2. I have no idea if he actually likes it or if he thinks it's the worst thing imaginable. <laughs> He's just really committed to the bit at this point. He can't exactly. He can't find a way out now. He can't give it up. But one of the things that, that you know, he would always bring up and, you know, I... I um, Max too, and, and, and myself is, you know, he's a, he's a really big Hitchcock fan. And um, Mission Impossible 2, it's got this whole bit which is lifted like almost word for word out of Notorious. I mean, basically the entire plot is like an action version of Notorious, yeah. the Alfred Hitchcock movie with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. But it, it really sort of nails it on the head when there's a scene at, at a, a, a racetrack, which is very, very similar to a scene at a racetrack in Notorious. And we would always talk about that. We're like, it's it's the best movie ever made. It's, you know, like notorious, but with gun battles and everything. <laughs> and <laughs> which if notorious is great, you know, but whatever. But I was at a convention a couple of years ago, a Star Trek convention, and, and Brandon Braga was up there. And the story by credit for Mission Impossible 2 is given to Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga. And so he's up there on stage, and I'm like, now's my chance. And I'm like, hey, Mr. Braga, what exactly was your contribution to Mission Impossible 2? And he's like, I don't even really remember. 
you know, we would go over to Tom Cruise's house like every day for like six months. He was a really cool guy. Um, we talked a lot about Notorious. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, all right. <laughs> but with with Mission Impossible 3, I mean, I'm on record. And we did a Mission Impossible 3 episode since it was directed by J.J. Abrams and everything. And yeah. I'm on record as saying that I think that movie is amazing. It was my number one movie of uh, 2006. And uh, I, I really love sort of the meta nature of that in that, you know, it, to me, I see that as like a pair with Alias where it's like Alias is a show which is, um, you know, sort of an, a modern uh, retelling of Mission Impossible, the show. And then when J.J. Abrams makes the leap to the big screen, he basically makes a big budget, um, big screen version of his television show alias and you can kind of look at those two things as a piece and say like this is what tv does well and this is what movies do well and all that other stuff i don't know i think that that movie's awesome and and the fourth one um i think is you know and, and it's also very much jj it's very much jj style and the yeah. fourth one is you know i mean it's kind of hard to tell but it's very different in that it is a brad bird movie but his his action and everything is much more choreographed and sort of old school, almost Spielbergian in nature. And I love that too. And I can't wait for this new one. I can't wait to see what Christopher McQuarrie, who's sort of known for doing like extremely realistic action sequences, what he's going to bring to the table. I think it's going to be awesome. Have you seen the trailer for the new one? I have seen the trailer for the new one. And uh, it does look rather thrilling. It really does. Uh, the thing on top of the plane, eh? Nolan did it, but okay. Um, <laughs> no, I'm but this just, is I'm this is teasing. you know you got that yeah. thing there where where like Tom Cruise is crazy and is like yeah I'm gonna do that myself you know yeah. Yeah. I mean like there's this shot which it looks like the most CGI shot ever in 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 Mission Impossible Two where he's having the fight and there's a knife and the two of them are going back and forth with this knife. And he ends up in the bottom, and Do Gray Scott brings the knife down, and it stops like a millimeter from Tom Cruise's eyeball, right? I don't yeah. know if you remember this shot. I do. And you look at that knife, and you're like, that's the most CGI knife in the history of CGI or knives, you know? And then yeah. you listen to the commentary, and they're like, that was a real knife. We actually did that. We attached it to a, a string, and we brought it down you know we measured it out and i'm like are you kidding me like what if that's and everyone else is freaking out and tom cruise is like no guys it's cool i got this it's all good it's all good he's a crazy guy but you know more power power to him i have to say he's living the dream he's living the dream (laughs) he is living the dream um but yeah i don't know this new movie looks super cool to me and and the thing about it i don't know what it is about these movies i don't know why or whatever but like when I see these trailers, maybe it's just because I, I'm remembering Mission Impossible Two in the lead up to that. But like, I'm just like I'm all in. Like this is the movie. Like someone was just asking me. We were just talking about this on another episode somewhere, and it's like, what movie are you looking forward to most this summer? It's Mission Impossible Rogue Nation for me, without a doubt. More you than know, Avengers. More than absolutely. I'm looking forward to Ant Man more than Avengers. But yeah. Well, that's a topic for another show. <laughs> Definitely. Peyton Reed, man. Yeah. Bring it on. Right? <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> bring it on is the best, and you know it. Oh, bring it on? Yeah. 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 Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't even realize. Okay. Now I'm looking forward to Ant Man. Yeah. Okay. You see? Um, you see? You sold me. <laughs> I don't, why aren't they playing that up in the ads, man? I have no idea. Oh, I have no idea. Bring it on. Me. Down with Love. Have you seen Down with Love? No, I have not. Oh, you got to see it. I think you'd like it a lot. Um, really, really cool movie. But uh, I'm writing it down like, right now. It's a it's a, like a, a 60s sex comedy kind of thing. Um, and it's shot just like that. Like as if Billy Wilder were to have made a movie in 2003. It's great. Ewan McGregor and Renee Zellweger. It's hilarious. Oh, I never saw that. But yeah, okay. Ewan McGregor. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll see anything with you and McGregor in it. Sure. And Jer- and Jerry Ryan's in it. So there you go. Hey, Star Trek connection. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes. Anyway, back to Star Trek. Yes. Whatever. <laughs> um, 
So, so yes, uh, speaking of Star Trek and Mission Impossible, uh, there, there is a, a pretty big connection between the two franchises, which is strange. You know, both of them were developed by Desilu um, simultaneously as a way to sort of like diversify that company and, you know, take it out of the sitcom world and, and make it into something more, um, I'm not going to say legitimate, but uh, more uh, diverse and bigger. And um, the two of them uh, were both uh, released at the same time. They both began in 1966. And when Star Trek was canceled, that's when Nimoy jumped over to Mission Impossible. So it kind of makes sense. Like, they're like parallel paths. It's almost like, I mean, kind of like Worf jumping over to Deep Space Nine after Next Generation ends, in a sense. Yeah, kind of. uh, you know, kind of, but not same, really. Sure, same, same, <laughs> same basic uh, idea. But then, you know, if you look at it, it goes even further because now, you know, in the '90s, they both became uh, fairly successful movie franchises, and then in the aughts, uh, Bad Robot ended up making movies for both of them, and Mission Impossible Three, being J.J. Abrams's first movie, basically has the entire same crew that worked on Star Trek 09 and, and Star Trek Into Darkness. I mean, down to the production designers and the editors and everything, cinematographers. Mission Impossible 3 is where he assembled his crew, which he then brought over to Star Trek. So even now, to this day, they're still connected, which is pretty cool. That that actually is pretty cool, and uh, given... You know, the other it's a tiny little property that he's working on for Disney right now. It would appear yeah. that Bad Robot and J.J. Abrams are maneuvering to take over the entire uh, entertainment industry yeah. uh, because they they own a lot of it. So, <laughs> And I'm totally OK with that because I think they do great work. I don't know. Yeah, it, there, there are worse people that could be at the helm. Yes, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, um, any final thoughts on... Um, Mission Impossible or Leonard Nimoy's performance on the show? Yeah, you know, uh, like we said before, it doesn't it doesn't really hold up, but that theme song holds up, and you know, it's fun to go back and sort of see what it was, you know, how things were, um, especially uh, television wise. But if you really, really want to bend your mind, okay, in uh, the fifth season. In the episode uh, The Innocent, um, the guy who played Major Frank Burns on MASH it, it plays a like a Russian guy <laughs> <laughs> that they have to, to foil. And um, uh, the, uh, oh gosh, I, I, I always forget actors' names, but uh, Major Houlihan, Hot Lips, is in the fourth episode of the season, uh, Homecoming. <laughs> and if you really want to just trip yourself up watch the killer which is the first episode of season five watch the innocent which is the third episode of season five and then watch homecoming and say to yourself what did the same production staff work on these shows did they actually know what was happening with this show what happened here like homecoming comes out of left field and just has absolutely no place in the Mission Impossible universe. So, you know, do yourself a favor, watch some, you know, something from season one, two, three, four, and then watch Homecoming from season five and just boggle your own mind. I, I missed that one, unfortunately, but I'll have to go back and check it out for sure now. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, for, for me, uh, as far as the show itself is concerned, you know, I, I do think that it is really well done, but I think that it really cannot sustain itself for 171 episodes. I mean, I haven't seen all of those, but I honestly can't imagine watching this because it really does seem like the same thing again and again and again. Um, it's the type of thing where I imagine, you know, if you were to pick out, you know, some of the key episodes which are considered to be the best and, you know, watch those as sort of like a DVD sampler or something like that, that would be a great way to sort of just get a taste of, of, of what you're missing so that you can be prepared for these movies, which, you know, while a lot of people complain about them straying from the formula, 
they it's probably they're probably better movies than than this was a show, if you ask me. Yeah. So. Uh, in terms of Nimoy's performance, I think that it was a really good choice for him in terms of like a career move because it really did allow him to uh, do a wide range of stuff. And he's really good doing that stuff. You know, I was always impressed with what I saw. He always sold it to me, which is important, especially since he's playing a guy who is um, required to sell himself to, uh, you know, the people on the screen. Yeah. So so that that was really um cool to me. And it really does sort of just the nature of the role and the fact that he is uh um playing a a role inside of a role really sort of makes you look at his performance from like an acting perspective and uh really sort of draws attention to how good Nimoy is. So yeah, definitely check out uh some of his stuff. Um because it's it's impressive. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been fun talking about Leonard Nimoy's work in Mission Impossible today, but that's not all that we're talking about here on Trek FM this week, so here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. It's not an overstatement, and you had said in your introduction that without... Without him and his hand guiding all of this, then then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was. And if it had not been successful, then it, it you know it probably would have meant the end of Star Trek at that point. Earl Grey, like I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to like walk around the corner and be like Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Curzon is involved with the Kidamo yep. Quartz. Spock is at Kinemer when those are being talked about, so you would think they would have run into each other. They probably at least. hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! <laughs> the ready room. The movie series would not have relaunched and, and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of. The Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, The Best of Both Worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, I've always liked the... Uh, I like that episode for... I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm-hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The 602 Club. Like, I, I could kind of dismiss Droids in Distress and Fight or Flight and everything like that, and I was just kind of watching the background, but all of a sudden I started catching myself, like, stopping working and, <laughs> and just focusing on watching. And, uh, and so it just got better and better and better. And I think I was hooked by episode four, Breaking Ranks. That's when I was like, okay, I like this show. This is good. Warp five. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the Daily Trek Talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows Podcast Directory, or you can stream them from the website. Just visit uh, trek.fm and uh, get all the, the links over there. Okay, so we had some feedback today, some more feedback. Um, Hooray. Yeah. We, we love like feedback. feedback. Yeah. Um, if, if you, you, you may remember a couple weeks ago, we got some voicemails from Thomas who was telling us about, uh, um, jean Viev Bujold's work on Anne of a Thousand Days and, and talking about, you know, uh, Kate Mulgrew and how good she is. And one of the things which he kind of slipped in there was that he had only seen one episode of Deep Space Nine. And we were like, wait, what? Yeah. How does this happen? So, um, so, so we said, Hey, you know, ch- check out some more Deep Space Nine. And he, he wrote 
uh, a note back to us. So, so here's what he says. He says, guy who sent the two emails last week, appreciated you including me in the podcast. Uh, we'll take your advice to give DS9 another shot. What I watched so far, pilot from the original broadcast. Okay, that's actually a good place to start with that, you know. Um, some of the shows, I mean, like, I would never recommend that with Next Gen. I would never recommend Encounter at Farpoint being your first. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> but, uh, <yeah. laughs> but like, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, I would say, like, yeah, watch the pilots first. That makes sense. Um, Little Green Men. Um, Greg Cox is my favorite Star Trek novelist, and his Eugenics Wars, Volume 2, refers to this episode. I hated it. Most things involving the Ferengi, although Voyager's episode with them was a great story. Um, I don't know. Do you remember Little Green Men? That's the I, one where... The, yeah. The, uh, they Roswell, to, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, I I can understand hating it. I, I personally like it. But um, the the thing about that episode is, like, it tries to do a thing. It tries to do a comedy bit. It's not your typical DS9 it does show sort of like um, how uh, far away from from the norm DS9 is willing to get, both in terms of tone and like story and style and everything. Yeah. Uh, but like I could see someone sitting there watching that, that being like, this is stupid. I do not think that it is all at all representative of Deep Space Nine on the whole, you know. I, I agree. I, I that specific episode, I went up uh, comparing actually with Futurama uh, when, yeah. they, when they went back to Roswell, and nothing can really hold a candle to that tour de force. So, the Ferengi or no Zoidberg? Yes, this is true. This is true. <laughs> but the thing about the Ferengi, you know, he says that he hates the Ferengi. Um, I can understand hating the Ferengi, okay, because. They are annoying, and, and lots of times they come across as sort of, like, grating. But the thing that Deep Space Nine does is there are episodes which are, are just sort of like, you're just like, oh, my God. Like uh, the one, um, the 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 Some Like It Hot ripoff thing. I forget the name oh, of it. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's some of those where you're just like, I can't believe you guys are doing this, really. But the thing about uh, about Deep Space Nine and the way that they dealt with the Ferengi was every once in a while, sort of in the middle of this, they would throw in something really profound, you know? Like yeah. Iris Stephen Bear, who, who ran Deep Space Nine, he loved the Ferengi because of uh, basically how they were representative of humans. And there were times where they would, you know, just throw little things in there where it just makes you kind of stop and think about it and and like like there's there's one part where i forget where it was where basically the ferengi are doing something stupid and cisco or someone is like my god the ferengi oh my god you know they're doing the same thing that we as an audience do right yeah but then but then quark stops and says something along the lines of like you think we're so primitive because you know we we have weird quirks and you know we we uh, are, are obsessed with money and everything like that, but we never went to like war with each other. We never killed millions of our own kind because of petty disputes or anything like that. So you tell me who's the more evolved species, and like stuff like that is actually kind of cool. It's buried. It's kind of few and far between you know when when they do that type of stuff but it, it it's stuff like that and also i think sort of like the earnestness of of armin shimmerman's performance yeah that 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 really sort of because if like if you talk to armin shimmerman about it and you know you're like oh man you were so funny on on uh deep space nine or whatever even though he was extremely funny and you can tell that he was playing a comic role and everything like that he'll be like what are you talking about i was being completely serious that's how i played it and i think that you know while he 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 was doing that or whatever he he took that that character so seriously that's what made it work i agree i i i completely agree i think that deep space i think that the ferengi were a misstep in next generation in deep space nine thanks to quark 
and even thanks to you know uh you know nog and rom oh, yeah. and his interactions with them i you know it, they become really interesting i i think that it's possible that little green men is since it is such a weird offbeat episode it's not the best one to recommend the ferengi further you yeah. know you need you do need to see some of like uh who mourns for mourn in season 6 mm-hmm. like quark you know has quite the role in that and you know you you find out those little moments where you find out that quark has a heart that he he is the way he is you know in terms of business and everything because of a sort of a sense of cultural obligation but when you strip it down you know even his devotion to uh Jadzia is legitimate you mm-hmm. know he he may put on airs about everything but he legitimately cared for her and was willing to go with Worf to you know commend her soul to Stovacor and everything and it's like that's not you know it shows a heart, a reality about uh, the character and the Ferengi as a whole that is not always apparent. Yeah, definitely true. Um, Thomas continues. Uh, he saw the the trouble uh, trials and tribulations in the TAS Tribble One, the, the animated series Tribble episode. So he's seen he's seen that, which is is good. That would have been the first thing I would have recommended for him. As yeah. a TOS fan, and he saw whatever uh, DS9 content Enterprise used, which I don't think was anything. I can't. I, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, he continues. My query isn't DS9 a sequential series versus episodic? I can't watch nine seasons, but perhaps you can suggest eight to ten that would turn me into a fan who wants more. I heard the Cardassian War was done extremely well. It's basically Cork and Odo that turned me away. The Ferengi are like the greedy Jar Jars of the universe, and Rene Auberjonois reminds me of Benson or whatever old sitcom he starred in. Um, he did a fantastic reading of Cox's second volume, though. Uh, anyone who loves Khan should read those then um, to reign in hell. By the way, uh, Professor Tenuto uh, had great comments as well as uh, Cushman. Okay, so... Um, I do want to say I agree with the uh, the the comments about the uh, the eugenics wars books. Those were fantastic. You, you've I, I read, read them? Oh yeah, yeah. And I I really enjoyed them. See, I haven't read them, but the thing <laughs> which I always bring up, which I, I always think is weird, is like I remember like when I worked with Max, there was one point where he had them. Like for there was like a week where he was reading both of them, and uh, which is weird in and of itself because it's like. Max is reading a Star Trek book? That doesn't happen, you know. <laughs> and then and then you know I'm like, "Hey, you read those books, you know, are they are they good?" And he's like, "Yeah, they're actually pretty good." And that just like blew my hair back. I'm like, "What? You read a Star Trek book and you liked it? This thing must be like the best book ever written. <laughs> is this like better than uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that?" I don't know. So <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but they're definitely worth reading. Okay, that's good to know. I have to check them out. Um, but, uh, yeah, as far as what to watch from Deep Space Nine, I mean, I, we'll, we'll put together a list and we'll we'll email it to you of, you know, eight to ten episodes because I think that's a good idea. It, it, it is sequential versus episodic in that there is a continuing storyline and things yeah. change. And unlike Mission Impossible, you can't just, you know, uh, pick up a random episode wherever and it won't matter. Like, the show, the storyline th- progresses throughout the show. But inside of that, you can pretty much watch any single episode and get a complete story from that, which you can sure. appreciate on its own. You know, it's just a much yeah. more rewarding experience when you watch the whole thing from the beginning. Yeah, I, I mean, I, a good example of that is uh, actually all the way in season seven um, Shadows and Symbols. Mm-hmm. You can watch that alone, but it does go a great distance toward advancing Cisco's character development toward the end of the show, yeah. like pointing him in that final direction. But you can watch that as a standalone. I, you know, I I would recommend watching something from an earlier season first. And like you said, we'll we'll put like a list together and everything. But 
along the way, you're absolutely right. There are ones you can pick up that, uh, you know, they, they contribute to the whole, but they're not dependent on the mythology. Like X-Files had a mythology, but there were still episodes you could pick up and watch that would plug in when you later went back and rewatched something that you taped, but in the moment didn't didn't matter what the mythology was. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if, if I had to recommend just a couple episodes for you to give uh, um, give you a good sense of, of what, what to watch, and, and this is for everyone, not just Thomas, but anyone out there who may have not uh, jumped into Deep Space Nine yet, because it is a daunting task. Um, yeah. I would say um, maybe something early on, since you've already seen the pilot, uh, the, the first three episodes of season two are are kind of like a, a three-parter. Um, it's yeah. like a Homecoming, uh, The Circle, and The Siege. That's a pretty solid little three-part arc right there. Um, I would definitely recommend those. Um, jumping ahead to like the, the first episode of season four, they did like a two-hour-long two episode where they introduced Worf, and that was mm-hmm. called uh, Way of the Warrior. Um, yeah, it's a really good, really it, good story. Yeah, and it really kind of like it, it was obviously designed to be sort of like a good entry point to the show because they, I mean, the whole point of bringing Worf on was to get more viewers who hadn't been watching it, and it's also sort of like the point where the show really, you know, just kicks into you know high gear and and just is off and running for the rest of the series. Those two. But if you want, like, two little examples of, like, things that, that this show does where it's just, like, almost a TOS in nature in that, you know, it's, like, a little self-contained story where it's just telling, like, a really good um, story with a, with a really good message or whatever. There's one which is really outside of the box um, in terms of, like, the style or whatever, and that's Far Beyond the Stars. Which is kind oh, of uh yeah. yeah. Um almost almost like sitting on the edge of forever type of of episode in that it all takes place in the past and everything, where basically um there's a question about uh whether or not um D- Deep Space Nine even exists or whether or not um Cisco is actually a writer in um the fifties who is uh, writing all of this as a story for a science fiction magazine. And there's a lot of stuff in there um, which is uh, sort of like about what the the culture of, well, I mean, well, America in general, but uh, science fiction writing very specifically was like at that point in time in in sort of the 50s and, and all of the prejudices that were involved and everything like that. That's a really good episode. It's almost like an episode of The Twilight Zone. And um, the other episode, which everyone recommends, is uh, In the Pale Moonlight, so that you can see just how dark this show can get and how unflinching it is in its portrayal and honesty um, when it comes to, like, war and the things that, you know, good people need to do um, in order to uh, make sure that evil doesn't win or you know, maybe they shouldn't be doing. It's it's a very it's a very uh you know interesting philosophical episode. It's considered to be one of the best because it's so incredibly dark. Um but it has kind of a weird style to it. It's not very straightforward. It's all told in flashback. Mm-hmm. Like after after the events occurred, Cisco is narrating them into his uh, captain's log and it's it's very cool and very dark. And I would definitely recommend that one too. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's our recommendations. I love I love you know telling people which Star Trek episodes they should watch. You know, uh, it is a lot of fun. Uh, I <laughs> see. I, I really like the ones uh, you've recommended. I would I would tack on to there because I do think you can watch it um, on its own. Is uh, Inquisition, uh, which I believe is in season six. Um, ah, yeah, uh, where, um, that's, uh, section 31. Yes. Oh yeah. And yeah. That, that's where that, and you know, uh, I always forget again, the actor's name, but the William Sadler. Yes. Him from Die Hard 2. Yes. He's awesome. 
Yes, the guy who turns the TV off with the remote control. Uh, yeah. Uh, while he's naked in, at the beginning of Die Hard 2 to show that he's a badass. That guy. Yes, um, that guy. Um, so I, I definitely recommend Inquisition. And I do think, um, and I'm surprised you overlooked this one because it truly is a standalone, even though it is in season seven. Uh, take me out to the Hollow Suite. I didn't forget. I mean, that's one of my favorites. If you're a baseball fan, uh, definitely check out Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. If would, you're not a baseball fan, I would. I, mean, I think that it's a great episode, right, for a lot of reasons. But since Thomas said he was not a fan of Little Green Men, I wasn't going to go that far out on a limb and recommend Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. But <laughs> I, the I do thing love is, that episode. I, I'm not a huge <laughs> baseball fan, but I think it's a terrific um just a terrific example of everything about Star Trek is about teamwork and focusing on what's important versus, you know, winning and, and, and achievement and those sorts of like focusing on what's important. And I really think that take me out to the hollow suite is a great example of an episode where the characters actually learn, you know, that sometimes it's just the love of the game that keeps you going. You know, yeah. you don't need all of the trappings and like and don't get caught up in that. I, I think because I, I, I just I think the message of the episode is wonderful. I, I love that episode, you know, with all my my heart. But uh, yeah, I wasn't <laughs> I, I was skeptical about recommending that to Thomas for fear of turning him off of all of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Watch <laughs> that one after you've watched some of these others. <laughs> after you've gotten to know the rest of the crew. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, if, if anyone else has any, uh, suggestions for Thomas or, or anything, um, uh, let us know, e- email us at comtrackstars at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at comtrackstars or, uh, um, or yeah, and any of those things you can, you can find a little, uh, tab, um, to send us a message on the, the side of our, our show page, or you can send a voicemail like Thomas did. There's a, a link on, uh, Trek FM to that as well. Um, you could also, uh, talk to us on Facebook at the Babel conference, uh, just type in B-A-B-E-L, um, conference in, uh, Facebook and, and, uh, you know, send us a request and we'll, we'll let you in and talk about some Star Trek. Uh, there's lots of ways for, for you to get in touch with us. Uh, John, how can people get in touch with you and what else are you doing on the internet these days? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, uh, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. And I'm also on a little podcast called Words with Nerds uh, that I appear on with my friend Craig uh, that airs on Thursdays, iTunes, Podbean, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Excellent. And you can find me right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew, and you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com where I do Commentary Track Stars Off-Topic with uh, um, Max and and Brandon, and um, yeah, check 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 those shows out as well. You know, I don't know, it's weird. I mean, like words with nerds, you guys do that on a weekly basis. Yep. Commentary track stars, I do that on on a weekly basis, and um, yet like only like a third of the people who listen to this show listen to those shows, where it's like. We're just talking about like other nerdy stuff that's not Star Trek. Come on, give us a listen. You know, we don't bite. What's the worst that could happen? Maybe you'll hear some profanity. Whatever. Not you guys hey, have heard that. We don't before. work blue on words with nerds, my friend. All right, go listen to words with nerds, and and for all of you, uh, <laughs> for the more adult audiences, <laughs> go to uh, commentary tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> all right well before we go uh we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary trek stars to you each week and our sponsor for this show is audible.com audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for audible is the premier source for audiobooks with over 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week from classics to current bestsellers and even some of your some of the most famous star trek books like prime directive federation or even greg cox's eugenics wars books audible has something for everyone 
As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel, novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting commentary, Trek stars, and the network. And finally, one last way that you can support us is by becoming a patron of the network on patreon.com. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and sign up today. You can, there's various uh, levels of donation where you can get various cool uh, rewards, kind of like Kickstarter, uh, but on a monthly basis. And we would appreciate anything that you could um, give us over there to help us keep uh, our shows going. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you'll get all the info over there. All right. Well, that's one Leonard Nimoy show in the can. Um We've got two more left. Neither of them are uh, dramatic works, but both of them are shows in which he uh, um, was a host. So uh, we'll we'll be dealing with those in the next couple weeks, the first of which is In Search Of. Yeah. 